Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Crotalidae snake bites account for almost 98% of snake envenomations across the United States. Their complex venom can cause significant hemodynamic and hematologic instabilities. Successful management of crotalidae envenomations requires a multifaceted approach, including prompt and appropriate pharmacologic intervention with antivenin and appropriate monitoring. Dr. Megan Grahusky from Mayo Clinic Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin, reviews the pathophysiology of envenomation, discusses management strategies to stabilize progression, and then reviews the pharmacology of FDA-approved antivenins. Don't be sad, be fab. We've got snake bites covered in today's podcast. So here the learning objectives for this presentation are listed, and by the end we will be able to recognize the incidence of common crotalidae snake envenomations in the U.S., describe the progression of the signs and symptoms associated with snake bites, discuss the role, use, and administration of antivenom in snake bites, and finally define other interventional therapies utilized for the management and stabilization of these snake bites. So crotalidae snakes, or informally known as pit vipers, are commonly subspecies of venomous vipers found throughout the Eurasia and America regions. The most common species found in the United States are the Achistrodon piscivorus, or the cottonmouth, the Achistrodon contortrix, or the copperhead, and the crotalidus or citrus species known as the rattlesnake. Through snake bites, those snake bites in um, general are relatively uncommon in the US. Uh, fatal envenomations um, from the species can result in significant complications that warrant careful evaluation and monitoring upon presentation. And throughout the rest of this presentation, I will refer to this group as pit vipers. So pit vipers are widely distributed across the US and according to the CDC are responsible for biting about 7,000 to 9,000 people each year. The cottonmouth primarily resides in the southeastern part of the country and bites from the species are relatively rare, only accounting for about five to 10% of bites. Then as we transition to the copperhead map, their prevalence expands a little more north and into the east coast and they are responsible for about 30 to 45% of cases. And finally, when looking at the distribution of rattlesnakes um, species, they expand, expand to the rest of the US apart from Alaska, Hawaii, Rhode Island, and Maine, and account for only about 50 to 55% of venomous bites. So picture yourself hiking in the woods and you come across a snake that you don't automatically recognize the species of staring you down and stopping you in your tracks. How can you tell if this is a harmless snake or a venomous snake? One general, all venomous snakes carry similar identifiable characteristics in that they have a prominent triangular head that transitions into a thick body. They also have elliptical-like eyes that almost resemble a cat's, retractable fangs, and they will also have a thermoreceptor pit between their nose and their eye. And then here I have a few unlicensed photos to highlight these characteristics. So with the first pair of photos, a rattlesnake on the left and a garter snake on the right. Uh, with the rattlesnake, you'll notice um, the blocky triangular shape of its head with a distinctly narrower, narrower neck. While on the other hand, with the garter snake, its head is more slender and blends into its neck. 
With the same set of photos, you can also see the vertical cat-like eye of the rattlesnake versus the rounder pupil of the garter snake. And then in this next set of photos, we again have a rattlesnake on the left and a garter snake on the right. And in these photos, you can see the definite um, difference in body size between these two snakes in that the rattlesnake has this thick, heavy body and short tail, while the garter snake has a more slender and long body with an even slenderer tail. And with our third set of photos, we have a cotton mouse snake on the top and our garter snake friend on the bottom. Uh, venomous snakes will have a noticeable retractable fangs that secrete the venom, while non-venomous snakes typically do not have fangs. Um, so when they bite, they'll gnaw and chew as a defense mechanism. And then the last characteristic I wanna highlight is the thermoreceptor pit um, that you can see uh, fairly well in the first photo of the rattlesnake head. And like I mentioned earlier, the thermoreceptor pit is located between the eye and the nose and it's used by venomous snakes as heat seekers to um, aid in hunting their prey. So previously I'd mentioned that pit vipers are responsible for biting roughly around seven to 9,000 people in the US each year. However, approximately five of those bites result fatally. So how do these snakes bite so many people, but only a small percentage um, have a poor outcome? Well, we need to consider that not all bites from a pit viper are necessarily venomous or deadly. So here I have outlined for you um, the primary differences between a dry bite and an envenomation. So in a dry bite, little to no venom is released from the snake. It may induce local and or systemic effects, but typically in a dry bite, because so little venom is injected, um, patients who present with this type of bite may overall be asymptomatic, or they may have a little pain, bleeding, inflammation, and redness around the wound site. Now, on the other hand, a bite is considered poisonous if a significant amount of venom is released, which then prompts a more prominent local and systemic effects such as blistering or necrosis at or around the bite, signs of shock, hemorrhage, and other coagulopathies. And with envenomations, the longer it remains unreversed, the more likely um, it will lead to serious adverse events. So envenomations are more common among young males around the ages 20 to 40 years old, as well as in children under 12 years old. Bites typically occur in the distal extremities with lower extremity envenomations being the most common and more likely accidental. While on the other hand, upper extremity envenomations are less common and are more likely to occur with intentional uh, contact with the snake. And lastly, pit vipers tend to be more active during late spring to fall months with their peak hunting times being dusk and dawn. So uh, bites can occur more frequently during these timeframes. So this is our first poll everywhere question. Um, so the question is, which pit viper has the greatest prevalence across the United States and is responsible for a majority of snake envenomations? Is it A, rattlesnake, B, cottonmouth, C, copperhead, or D, garter snake? And again, you can download the Poll Everywhere app or respond to polleverywhere.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. All right, so we have 21 results with A, rattlesnake, which is correct. Um, rattlesnakes account for most, about 50 to 55% of envenomations and cover a good majority of the United States. So envenomations, um, snake venom is a mixture of over 50 compounds that have a wide variety of effects on the body's physiology. Uh, pit viper venom can contain major enzymes such as phospholipase A2 and L-amino oxidase, and both have demonstrated inducing cell apoptosis, 
cell cycle arrest and suppression on the cell on cell uh, proliferation. Most venoms have thrombin-like glycoproteins that escalate the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin, thus causing an increased clotting risk. Um, but venom can also uh, activate and escalate clotting cascade, which results in prolonged prothrombin time as well as elevated INRs. A venom can also contain C-type lectins, disintegrins, and metal proteinases that induce the aggregation of platelets by activating the von Willebrand factor. Um, but of course, platelet aggregation can also be inhibited, which a patient may present with a new onset th uh, thrombocytopenia. Uh, within one hour of envenomation, an enzymatic reaction can occur within the tissue, thus causing tissue swelling, redness, and pain. Um, as the swelling progresses, it can eventually lead to tissue necrosis, which has the potential for significant tissue loss and even amputation. Uh, snake venom is rapidly absorbed and is slowly eliminated from the body. So the longer that treatment is delayed, the more severe envenomation symptoms evolve into. And then neurotoxins in venom is rare, um, but tends to be more common in three types of uh, rattlesnake species, being the Mojave, Timber, and the Southern Pacific rattlesnakes. And their venom can induce an ascending paralysis caused by releasing a toxin um, that inhibits presynaptic inhibition of acetylcholine. So if antivenom is given in a timely fashion, progression to neurotoxicity can be prevented. So next I'll go through a map of a potential progression of symptoms if a patient does not seek or receive proper medical attention for their envenomation. Um, it is important to note that not all patients will experience the same symptoms and they may um, experience certain effects at different time intervals. Um, so first, immediately after the bite, it's common for patients to feel panicked, faint, um, nauseated from the event that had just occurred. And then within minutes to hours, uh, symptoms can then progress um, to increased swelling and pain around the bite, and the patient may even start to show signs of shock. Then after about eight hours without reversal, coagulopathies become more severe, uh, tissue damage can become necrotic, and depending on the offending snake, uh, neurotoxicity can begin to present initially as altered mental status, loss of facial muscle control, and flaccid paralysis. So when it comes to snake bites, we can largely classify the severity of the bite depending on how the patient presents to us. Um, so for a dry bite, again, meaning that very little to no venom was injected by the snake, um, patients may have fang marks uh, present with them that are irritable, but will generally have no or minimal local or systemic um, symptoms within the eight to 12 hours after the bite. Um, and in these bites, reversal with antivenom is not indicated. Uh, in a mild bite, uh, the patient may have minor swelling around the bite wound and may exhibit minor systemic symptoms, um, even coagulopathies. Um, though most mild bites do not require treatment with an antivenom, um, some expert consults will opt to administer antivenom depending on the patient's past medical history um, and other factors. Uh, so making that initial call to poison control is incredibly vital to determine if your patient is a candidate for antivenom therapy. Um, a patient with a moderate bite may have swelling that spreads just beyond the bite wound and damage to the tissue can begin to occur. Coagulopathies and systemic symptoms are also more prominent in these bites, so antivenom is usually given in these cases. And finally, a patient with a severe envenomation will have significant swelling and pain near and around the wound as well as are likely to sign um, definite signs of shock. 
All right, so let's go back to our little hiking scenario from earlier. Um, you were able to conclude from afar that you had come face to face with what may have been a venomous snake because of its physical characteristics you had identified. So you decide to take an alternative trail to avoid the snake. However, after a few paces, you hear a scream from one of the hikers that was close behind you and he shouts that he has been bitten by a snake. Being well-versed in snake management, you rush to control the scene and ensure that not only the patient, but other hikers and onlookers remain calm and that you are out of striking distance of the snake. You then help the patient to lie down and encourage him to remain still. The hiker's friend named John offers his help, calls 911 and goes to massage the calf muscle where the wound is visible and hopes to relieve any pain. But you stop him just in time and explain to him that massaging and tampering with the wound can increase the speed at which the venom spreads throughout and is absorbed by the tissue. So instead, he um, wipes off the excess venom found on the surface of the wound, which is unlikely to do any harm, but will not improve the situation for the patient. And since you know how to create a makeshift splint from the materials around you, you attempt to immobilize the limb and also remove an anklet bracelet and boot from the same leg, as this can potentially act as a tourniquet if edema or swelling begins to develop. And as you and John wait for an, an ambulance, you continue to observe the patient and are ready to support the patient's breathing, cardiac function, and other vitals if needed. John then shouts at you, but shouldn't we try to stop the venom from spreading? But you remind him to stay calm and that any manipulation of the envenomated tissue can increase the spread and potentially escalate symptom progression. In general, um, oral intake should be uh, avoided. However, clear liquids can be encouraged to prevent dehydration, especially if medical attention is delayed. And then if the offending snake has been killed, it should be brought in along with the patient for identification, remembering not to touch the head when handling it. However, if the snake was not killed, it should not be pursued. And instead, a detailed description of the snake should be given to the medical team when they arrive. And finally, as the patient is transported to the nearest medical facility, the limb should remain immobilized and the patient's vitals should continue to be monitored closely. And it's vital that we continue to observe the patient's stability in anticipation that they begin to so, show signs of shock. And we would manage the state of shock just the same as any other case in that we would consider managing the patient's airway with endotracheal intubation, um, especially if there is concern for uh, neurotoxicity, obtaining IV access and administering IV fluids and starting any vasopressors to maintain blood pressure control if needed. All right, next poll everywhere question. Um, what is a common initial reaction to a snake bite in the field? Is it A, flaccid paralysis, B, panic nausea, C, necrosis of the surrounding tissue, or D, hemorrhage? All right, we have 25 results, um, and the right answer is panic and nausea. So before I dive into the modern day treatment um, of anti-venom, um, I thought it would be interesting to highlight what people would do in the 1800s to try and treat their venomous snake bites. So there were a number of things that frontiersmen would try uh, with the first being gunpowder. And they believed that if they applied the powder directly to the wound and light it on fire, the venom would simply burn off and out of the wound. Ammonia was also a common agent and remedy for a number of disease states back then, and this was simply applied to the snake bite. 
Frontiersmen would also tourniquet off the bite and attempt to amputate large portions of the envenomated tissue um, in hopes to remove the venom. Um, this, of course, was very painful and would lead to other complications such as infections. To aid in any inflammation and pain, a poultice, which is usually a mixture of warm bread and clay um, that was wrapped in a cloth, this was applied to the bite and the surrounding issues to reduce any of that. And finally, large amounts of whiskey and bourbon were consumed as it was believed that the alcohol inactivates the snake venom. However, during this time period, it was largely unknown that alcohol only increases the circulation and absorption of the venom throughout the tissues. So in actuality, this was actually making their envenomations much worse. So antivenom is the primary treatment for envenomations and is significantly effective if given within four hours of a snake bite. Um, however, giving antivenom just because a patient has been bitten by a snake is inappropriate. Uh, therefore, a detailed patient history should be obtained, which should include when, where, and how um, the snake bite occurred. If there were any initial symptoms, um, if first aid treatments were provided and the timing of those treatments, um, if the patient had consumed any alcohol beforehand um, that may impair the uh, patient's current presentation, and of course, any past medical history or medications such as anticoagulation um, or prior administration of antivenom. So once this information is obtained, poison control or an on-site toxicologist should be contacted at 1-800-222-1222 for further guidance. Uh, but typically antivenom administration is indicated if there's evidence of a clear, moderate to severe envenomation, but again, can also be given to patients with mild bites depending on the case. And it's also given if the patient's symptoms are rapidly progressing or is requiring intervention for shock management or if the snake species is known to secrete a neurotoxin. So currently there are two FDA approved antivenoms on the market. They are Crotalide Polyvalent Immune Fab or known by its uh, brand name Crofab and Crotalide Immune Fab 2 uh, or brand name Anavip. And for the remainder of this presentation, I will refer to Crofab as Fab and Anavip as Fab 2. So Fab was initially approved in 2000 and is an ovine or sheep-based uh, medication that is derived from the venom of United States pit vipers. Uh, while Fab 2 was approved more recently in 2015 and is an equine-based serum that is derived from pit viper snakes in Mexico. So Fab is a pit viper-specific fag fragment um, of IgG that works by binding to and neutralizing venom toxins, while also facilitating distribution away from tissues and elimination from the body. Its initial dose is four to six one-gram vials that are each reconstituted with 18 milliliters of normal saline and are infused intravenously over at least one hour. The patient should then be observed for another hour after administration and an additional four to six vials should be administered until symptom control is established. And after symptoms are no longer progressing um, and control is established, two vials then should be administered every six hours for a total of 18 hours or a total of three doses. The only contraindications to receiving FEB is having a known hypersensitivity reaction to papaya, papain, or pineapple enzyme, since papain is used to cleave IgG into their FEB fragments. Um, and trace amounts of papain residue can be present and induce a reaction. Um, infusion reactions can also occur with FAB, but this typically correlates to the rate of infusion and can be corrected by simply decreasing the rate. 
um, to avoid infusion reactions altogether. Um, just start the infusion slow, and if the patient tolerates it, the rate can slowly increase to 25 to 50 mils per hour. Some common adverse effects associated with FAB include coagulopathies, urticaria, rash, nausea, pruritus, and back pain. And when considering the use of FAB in special populations, such as pregnancy, uh, fetal harm is relatively unknown. So the use of FAB should be used with caution and if medically necessary. And in regard to pediatrics and elderly populations, um, the use of FAB has been found to be just as effect, um, efficacious and safe as compared to the general population. Um, when FAB was first manufactured, they used to use small amounts of mercury for preservation. And because of this, uh, the mercury content of CROFAB was um, a concern and need to be considered, especially for pediatric patients. Um, but mercury is no longer utilized in this manufacturing process and is no longer needed to be considered um, for pediatrics. The mechanism of FAB2 is generally the same as FAB in that it binds to and neutralizes venom toxins and facilitates its redistribution away from tissues for elimination from the body. However, instead of a single FAB fragment of IgG, it is uh, a FAB2 fragment. The initial dose depends on the severity of the patient. So for mild envenomations, the initial dose is two to four vials. Uh, for a moderate envenomation, five to nine vials. Um, and lastly, for a severe presentation, you would administer 10 to 15 vials. And this is when it's uh, incredibly helpful to have poison control on board to help you make the decision of how many vials should initially be infused for your patient. And then unlike FAB, a maintenance dosing regimen is not required. Um, however, an additional one to two vials should be administered if systemic or local symptoms progress um, in severity. FAB2 is also administered as an IV that is infused over at least one hour, and each vial must be reconstituted with 10 milliliters of normal saline. Um, there's no contraindications to receiving FAB2, and infusion reactions related to the rate of of infusion can also occur with this antivenom. So like the first, um, this can be controlled by decreasing the rate of infusion. The adverse effect profile of FAB2 is slightly more extensive than that of FAB um, and includes reactions such as transmissible infections since this formulation is equine derived. It also includes effects such as arthralgia, back pain, and peripheral edema. And since Cresol is something that is utilized in the manufacturing process um, of FAB2. Uh, localized reactions can also occur because of this. And finally, similar to FAB, caution and consultation with a toxicologist should be made when considering the use of FAB2 in pregnancy and the overall use in pediatrics and elderly populations is considered safe and efficacious. So the first trial here is a randomized controlled multi-center trial that compares the efficacy and safety of a scheduled versus an ad-needed dosing regimen of FAB in the United States. Uh, this trial included patients who were 10 years or older and presented with a mild or moderate envenomation with progression of symptoms. Uh, patients were excluded if their symptoms were not progressive if they presented with a severe envenomation or presented with an envenomation by a copperhead snake, has received at least one vial of antivenom uh, prior to enrollment, as well as having a history of hypersensitivity to ovine products. Uh, they were also excluded if they had utilized corticosteroids in the last four weeks or if the patient was pregnant. 
So a total of 31 patients were enrolled in this trial and after receiving treatment with FAB to achieve initial symptom control, a uh, uh, total of 31 patients were enrolled and 16 were then randomized into the uh, as-needed group who did not receive additional planned doses of FAB and 15 were randomized into the scheduled group. Um, and these patients received the recommended maintenance dosing of um, two vials every six hours for a total of three doses. Again, this trial focused on the overall efficacy of FAB and its success in achieving and maintaining symptom control initially after one hour, six hours, and 12 hours after post-control. Uh, they also evaluated the patient's overall response to FAB administration. So if, the clinical if they had a clinical response, a partial response, non-response, or if they were unable to be evaluated. And then lastly, they also looked at hypersensitivity reactions. And essentially they found that the severity scores that were utilized to quantify the clinical effects of the venom among all patients in both groups, um, they had decreased from an initial mean score of 4.35 to 2.39. And there was no statistically significant difference between the as needed or the scheduled groups. Patients in the scheduled group did not receive any additional doses of FAB um, after the completion of maintenance dosing, while up to 16 patients in the as-needed group received additional doses um, after initial symptom control, so almost mi mimicking that maintenance dosing. Um, acute adverse reactions occurred among six patients throughout both groups, and at follow-up, six patients presented with serum sickness, which is a delayed reaction to any antibody infusion that can occur from days to weeks after infusion. Um, so, but this trial concluded that FAB antivenom effectively neutralizes pit viper venom and patients were likely to acquire or require additional doses of FAB um, following initial symptom control. The second trial compares FAB and FAB2 to determine which is superior in preventing late onset coagulopathies associated with an envenomation. Uh, patients were included in the study if they were within the age range of 2 to 80 years old and had presented with an envenomation that required emergency treatment. Patients were excluded from the study if the patient was currently pregnant, had previous treatment with antivenom, um, had a known allergy to sheep, horse, or papaya, or if their clinical presentation did not warrant antivenom treatment. A total of 123 patients were randomly and equally um, placed among three groups. So 41 patients received FAB2 for both initial symptom control and maintenance. 41 patients received FAB2 for initial control, followed by placebo and 41 patients received FAB for both symptom and maintenance control. Coagulopathy between the end of maintenance dosing and day eight of the study was observed by looking at the patient's platelet count, fibrinogen levels, and the overall use of additional antivenom um, to treat any coagulation abnormalities. Uh, they also gathered secondary data on venom levels and safety parameters around both antivenom products. And so overall, this trial found that the coagulopathies were less frequent in the groups that received FAB2 for both symptom control and maintenance, um, as well as the group that only had received FAB2 for that initial control. And this is thought to be associated with the longer half-life of FAB2 versus FAB being um, five and a half days versus 24 hours, respectively. And then regarding secondary outcomes, all adverse effects were reported um, as mild with fewer occurrences in the FAB2 plus uh, placebo groups. Our third assessment question 
Uh, what hypersensitivity is a contraindication to receiving treatment with FAB? Is it A, sheep, B, horsehair, C, latex, or D, papain? All right, so we have 19 results, and D, papain is the correct answer for this one. <coughs> so moving on to surgical considerations, um, the development of compartment syndrome from a snake envenomation is a rare occurrence. However, the increased progression of tissue swelling, tingling sensation, and severe pain can mimic and raise concern for compartment syndrome. And in very rare uh, or very severe envenomations, sometimes an emergency fasciomedy may be required. However, tissue excision and attempt to remove any venom or relieve pressure buildup in the tissue has not shown to have any benefit on outcomes and is generally not recommended unless a definitive compartment syndrome diagnosis is made or if tissue pressure remains significantly severe despite multiple antivenom administrations. So until this diagnosis is made, antivenom remains the treatment of choice. So now we know that antivenom neutralizes circulating venom and prevents the overall progression of the envenomation. However, this process does take time. So therefore we may need to provide the patient with pain control and manage coagulopathies that may arise. As we discussed earlier in the presentation, uh, coagulation and thrombocytopenia is associated with thrombin-like glycoproteins found within snake venom. And because coagulation is due to venomous properties, removal with an antivenom is the primary treatment. Uh, platelets and blood products are generally not recommended since they will likely be inactivated by the venom anyways. However, blood products such as fresh frozen plasma or whole blood may be used in two situations. Uh, one, if the patient experiences a life-threatening hemorrhage while receiving an infusion of antivenom, or two, if antivenom is simply not available at the medical facility. Uh, but before reaching for a transition in a patient who is persistently bleeding despite initial um, antivenom efforts, additional antivenom should be trialed first. Um, also in this case, um, the bleeding may visually resolve fairly rapidly, but lab work may resolve at a much slower rate. So using clinical visual bleeding is potentially more useful over utilizing labs such as CBC, um, platelet count and INR as an indicator for them uh, for additional um, anti-venom for the hemorrhage. Um, but just because these labs resolve solely um, does not mean that we should not utilize them to monitor coagulation status for the patient. A pain is a symptom that many patients with a snake bite will experience. Um, and patients who are experiencing mild to moderate pain are safe to receive acetaminophen. Uh, there has been controversy with the utilization of NSAIDs in this patient population due to increased concerns of disrupting platelet function. However, if the patient is exhibit, exhibiting minimal coagulation changes, NSAIDs have been deemed safe and can be used if acetaminophen is not successful in pain control. Um, on the other hand, if pain is severe, we can also consider utilizing agents such as fentanyl and morphine. Uh, however, the use and administration of antivenoms has been associated with lowering pain scores and decreasing the need to utilize opioids for pain management post-envenomation. And this concept is supported by a study that was conducted to assess whether antivenom administration at, um, affected opioid use after copperhead envenomations. So patients were included in this trial if they were 12 years or older and had presented with a mild or moderate copperhead envenomation within 24 hours of presentation. Overall, 72 patients were included 
and 45 had received an initial dose of six vials of FAB with an additional six vials as needed to achieve the symptom control. Uh, this was then followed by two vials at six hours, 12 hours, and 18 hours after initial control. Um, and then the remaining 29 patients received normal saline at the same intervals. After their interventions, patients verbally reported their opioid use throughout the 28 days after their envenomation post-discharge. And to aid in assessment, a general patient-specific functional scale was utilized. Uh, after the 28 days, about 49% of all patients reported the use of an opioid at least once between discharge and their first follow-up appointment. Uh, 18 patients who received FAB reported opioid use, while 26 reported no opioid use. And then 17 patients who received normal saline reported, reported opioid use, while 11 reported no use. So pretty comparable between the two groups. Um, but it was eventually found that a greater proportion of patients treated with um, placebo reported opioid use at each follow-up time point and required a longer duration of pain management when compared to those treated with FAB. Uh, so overall, the administration of FAB was seen to have decreased the overall likelihood of opioid use as um, the time of the post-envenomation progressed. And then our last assessment question, um, when can fresh frozen plasma be used in a patient who has developed a snake envenomation induced hemorrhage? So A, hemorrhage remains life-threatening despite antivenom use. B, antivenom is not available. C, blood products should never be used. Or D, both A and B. All right, so yes, the answer is both A and B. If the hemorrhage remains life-threatening after antivenom or B, the antivenom is not readily available. So to conclude, all patients who receive antivenom administration with either FAB or FAB2 will require hospital admission for observation um, of symptoms as they may require additional doses of antivenom as well as to receive any supportive cares. Uh, then once stable, patients should be instructed to return back to the hospital if swelling begins to develop or worsen, as well as um, if uh, any new abnormal bleeding occurs. Um, it's also important to educate patients um, who experience coagulopathies while admitted to avoid contact sports, dental care, and to reschedule any major surgeries for at least two weeks. Uh, these patients who received antivenom treatment should be sure to also schedule out follow-up appointments two to three days and five to six days after envenomation to have their prothrombin time, fibrinogen, and platelets drawn and assessed. So once again, I would like to thank you all for joining me today in person and virtually for my presentation, Time is Tissue Management and Stabilization of Crotalidae Snake Bites. What questions can I answer for you? And those who are virtual, um, feel free to unmute your mics um, and ask the questions. All right, so thank you. Um, do you have a sense of the yearly caseload for Minnesota? I do not have those numbers. Um, not sure if anyone in the room does, no. Um, I could definitely look into this, um, but no, I did not look into caseloads for um, any sites that Mayo Clinic is located in. Yes. Great job. Um, does Mayo have a preference for FAB or FAB2 on the formulary? And if so, do you agree with the preference? So Mayo currently has CROFAB. Um, I think that's a good choice. Um, it tends to be the cheaper option um, and there's great data and statistics to support the use of that initial dosing plus the maintenance dosing. So I think it's a fine choice for the formulary. 
Megan, that was a very interesting talk and something that we obviously don't think about a lot, um, at least in this region. I guess my question has to do more with, you know, the logistics and practicality in the field. Um, I don't think that, you know, ambulances carry Profab um, with them or EMTs carry it with them, but maybe they do in other areas of the country. I, I guess, does that happen to your knowledge where it's, you know, areas with higher prevalence of snake bites have this in the field versus in the ED? What's that look like? I'm not sure. Um... When I was looking into this, I didn't find anything about uh, places with higher snake bite yield um, having their ambulances carrying Crofab. Um, they really stress the importance of getting the patient to the hospital for that um, that initial um, workup to determine if they do need the Crofab or not. Yeah, I'm going to pick on you on this since you came from Arizona. I mean, do you when you were down there, is that only ED or... Yeah, not not to find in the Phoenix metro area, you know, not to find knowledge that there were any EMS crews that were carrying. And to that, I mean, it was just, it was get people to the, the site as, you know, in an ER as fast as you could. Yeah. And then either, you know, trans, you know, close as ER, transport them to a facility that treated snake bites on a regular basis or, or handled them. So the next question I see is, have uh, seen devices to suck out venom OTC? What are your thoughts on frequent outdoorsmen carrying? So yes, when I was doing my research for this, I did see quite a few um, outdoor sites and stores that um, sold devices to suck out venom. And all guidelines say to leave the wound site alone, don't manipulate the wound site in any way to avoid spreading that tissue. Um, you're really likely not to suck out any venom anyways, so you're really doing more harm than good. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.